You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Understanding God's Righteousness, episode number 62, we are on now. This is a continuation from the previous episode, the principle of judgment number one. Motivation is an offence accelerant in relation to the degree of offence for a sin against God. The issue of eating meat offered to idols highlighted the variable judgment determinations based on motivation. Why is it that one activity can be a sin for one person, but not for another? This series is brought to you by Brother Jim Dillingham from the Cranston Ecclesia in the USA. The current issue we are considering in the context of understanding God's righteousness is the principle of judgment. The issues we considered in our previous class included how the judgments of God cannot be understood primarily in how our sins impact other people, but how they impact God's righteousness. We considered how motivation can be an accelerant in the degree of offense to God for a sin. We also looked at the seemingly rather harsh judgment of a death sentence for a priest not wearing linen undergarments when he was performing duties in the tabernacle or at the altar of burnt offering. We considered the substance casting the shadow lesson of how the linen served as a a promise of immortalization and the avoidance of sweat that was a component of the judgment in Eden for that original creation corrupting sin. This is the value of truly understanding the terms of our Creator's righteousness, answering those why questions. If we can understand the shadows, we have a greater opportunity to correctly understand the substance casting those shadows, as well as avoiding the danger of offending God and His Son. We considered uh, the very odd presumption that all sins are equally offensive to God, which is completely impossible. We also touched on the issue of discipline, which is certainly a component of judgment, and how the heart-generated thought process of both the uh, unenlightened society and some within the enlightened community presume discipline is actually ungodly and wrong. The philosophy of an absence of discipline develops from the current condition of the prophesied waxing cold of the love of many in our final generation of the ecclesial age. Discipline is a feature of love. According to scripture, the absence of discipline, both in relation to educating our children and ecclesial discipline, is proof of a very low level of love. This is the divine equation that Paul highlighted to the Hebrews. In addition to the diminishing of love, this presumption of the illegitimacy of discipline also develops from an absence of the fear of God. This also is a feature of the repeatedly prophesied erosion of divine acceptability in our last generation of the ecclesial age. 
the denial of the fear of God. This is one of the many oversimplifications of the always dual applications of all divine principles. Quite a number of our teachers and writers insist our understandings of the fear of God have to be exclusively limited to the very pleasant application of reverential fear that we should not have any concern about consequences for offending God, no concern about God's chastising policy for the children that he loves, and have no fear at all concerning some possible rejection at Christ's judgment. We are endlessly advised from the preferred teachers of our enlightened community today to take our salvation for granted, following the pattern and thought process of the born-again Christians. The absence, this absence of the fear of God, defended by the usual oversimplifying procedures that always corrupt God's testimony, results in the kind of spiritual laziness and self-worshipping attitude that Jesus references in his prophetic letter to the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3, that last ecclesial development stage just before the restoration of God's kingdom. But we have many more issues to address within the framework of the principle of judgment. Let's drill down a little more into this divine offense qualifying issue of motivation and see how this can affect the degree of offense in relation to our sins. Let's remember another one of the foundational issues that we've always, we have to always apply when trying to understand the counterintuitive features of God's righteousness. And this, of course, is addressing the why questions. As we've noted in the past, why questions address motivation. But our society trains us through their educational process and societal presumptions to answer why questions with how answers. This is why the, un <clears throat> the unenlightened, and even many within the enlightened community, cannot see or hear the testimony of God's other witness in addition to the Bible, the witness of creation. A child may ask their mother or father, why does the sun come up every morning? The answer most often will include the uh, rotation of the earth on the basis of the gravitational control of our sun in our solar system. That's a how answer. That's not a why answer. The why answer would address the creator's design and the eternal spiritual principles being presented by this process that resulted from the verbal commands of the Creator. A child may ask why they have to wear clothes when their family dog doesn't have to wear clothes. The offered answer may include some foolish reference to evolution and how human beings have no insulating fur like the family pet. But the real answer is why Adam and Eve experienced a new and sudden shame for their nakedness following the first that first creation corrupting sin. Why questions are about motivation. Recognizing the significance of correctly addressing why questions trains our eyes and our, uh, to see and our ears to hear the testimony of God that is never heard by the unenlightened community and historically and sadly rarely heard by the enlightened community. The why questions address motivation, not procedure. Motivation has a divine, definite influence 
on this principle of judgment, this divine principle of judgment, and the degree of offense against God's righteousness in relation to our sins. So let's consider how the same activity can be a sin for some people, but not for others. This is the issue of eating meats that had been identified with pagan worship. This was an issue addressed at the Jerusalem Council. That council was convened as some within the enlightened community were insisting the Gentile converts had to be circumcised or they could not possibly be saved. Paul and Barnabas were in Jerusalem and were confronting the brethren, these other Christadelphians, who were insisting circumcision was absolutely necessary for salvation. So the apostles and the elders of the brotherhood held a council to consider the matter of requiring the Gentile converts to be circumcised or not. The conclusion was not to require circumcision, but there were still four behavioral issues of abstinence that were imposed on the Gentile converts by James. We read in Acts 15 and verse 19, James says, Wherefore my sentence is, that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. Now, this James is not one of the twelve apostles. Um, that other James, the, John, the son of Alphaeus, the, the brother of John, had already been executed by Herod back in chapter 12. It is assumed, logically, this James in Acts 15, obviously a leader in the enlightened community, was probably James, the half-brother of Jesus, one of the sons of Mary and Joseph. This is most probably the James that wrote the book of James, one of those eight authors, or, or sub-authors, of the New Testament. So these four commands from the Jerusalem Council were all abstinences, as opposed to participation activities, such as circumcision. Abstain from fornication. Abstain from eating things that had been strangled. Abstain from eating blood. Abstain from pollutions of idols, which, which means meats that had been dedicated to a pagan god. Three of these four required abstinences were based on dietary restrictions. Now, this is a little odd because Jesus had already declared all foods to be clean and incapable of spiritually defiling believers. During Christ's ministry, his disciples asked him privately about his declaration. There's nothing going into a man that can defile him. In other words, establish a physical basis for a contradiction to God's required holiness. That was an issue of considerable significance under the laws of the kingdom, but Jesus was changing those laws of physical defilement on the basis of what one ate. We read in Mark 17, I'm sorry, Mark 7 and verse 17, um, and when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he said unto them, Are you also without understanding? Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from without enters into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it enters not into his heart, but into the belly, and goes out into the draft, purging all meats. And he said, 
that which comes out of the man, that defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. It appears Jesus was rather disappointed with his disciples' capacity to learn and capacity to mature in understanding spiritual truths. As he says, are you so without understanding also? Jesus goes on to explain that nothing we ingest has the capacity to defile a person. It is what comes out of men and women that defile them. We read that Jesus purged <clears throat> purged all meats, meaning he removed that spiritual defiling capacity of uh, pork, and shellfish, and chicken, and many other foods. That would include any food dedicated to a pagan idol, because as Jesus said, whatsoever thing enters into the man cannot defile him. This is one of those proofs exposing the lie of the the fallen angel. Paganized Christianity insists that a wicked, rebel, immortal angel uh, that introduces ungodly temptations into mankind uh, to generate ungodly behavior. And Jesus declared it's not what goes into a man from the outside that defiles a man, but what issues from within a person. He declares all those ungodly behaviors of evil thoughts, adultery, fornication, murder, covetousness, deceit, etc., etc., all issue from within, which eliminates the excuse that we can blame God for not controlling his angels or preventing them from corrupting us in our complete innocence. The point is that Jesus already declared that food cannot defile a believer. But the Jerusalem Council still imposed on Gentile converts the command to abstain from the pollutions of idols, partaking of meats that had been dedicated to pagan gods. So, Paul addresses this issue to both the Romans and the Corinthians. However, Paul's determinations, in other words, his judgments in this matter, are quite different from the Jerusalem Council where he had been in attendance along with Barnabas. We're going to make our way through 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and then Romans 14. Make a few comments as we go about Paul's reasoning. But let's review what we will be reading in these two chapters. Paul is primarily addressing the issue of spiritual defilement due to eating meats that may have been dedicated to a pagan god. But he expands that to include the assumption that whatever limitations we believe to be appropriate for ourselves in relation to our service to God absolutely must be similarly respected and imposed on all other believers. Now that is a much bigger issue than just eating meat that may or may not have been identified with a pagan god. Paul refers to issues like knowledge, and weakness of faith and conscience, which are all variables in judging what is right and what is not right. 
in the more than five decades since I, I was baptized, there have been a number of similar issues in our enlightened community, such as if we should exclusively use the King James Version in our brotherhood, if we absolutely must use the King James practice of saying thee and thou and whatsoever in all our prayers, if we should exclusively read the Hebrew names and titles of God, such as Yahweh, El, Elohim, etc., as opposed to the substitutions of Lord and God when doing our Bible readings, along with the, <clears throat> the ob observance of birthdays and certain paganized Christian holidays like, like Easter and Christmas, and even how we dress when attending memorial service. Most of these issues have actually ceased to be contentious within our brotherhood, but that's primarily because this generation of our brotherhood has fulfilled Christ's prophecy about our becoming increasingly lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. As a community, we just don't care that much anymore. There's very little intensity in our faithfulness to the terms of God's righteousness. And this is why ungodly understandings like, like theistic evolution, same-sex relationships, and the disrespect for fellowship distinctions have been able to grow significantly within our enlightened community. As a group, we really don't care that much anymore. As a community, we think we're wonderful, beautifully, spiritually clothed, and see clearly. But Jesus says that our exact generation is wretched, miserable, blind, naked, poor in faith. Fortunately, this does not have to be the case on an individual basis, but is absolutely the context of our enlightened community as a whole. The application of these prophecies to our specific generation is, is reasonable, legitimate, and defensible, and repeated throughout Scripture. So, this subject of understanding the principle of judgment will only be a concern to those outside that common lukewarm framework. So let's go through 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and see how Paul develops this issue that was so challenging in that infant stage of the ecclesial age. In 1 Corinthians 8, we read, where Paul says, Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. A knowledge puffs up, but charity, um, that's agape, love, uh, love edifies. If any man think that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Let's condition this statement. First, there is no indication that knowledge will always, in every case, generate arrogance. But knowledge without love definitely is a formula for arrogance and the absence of wisdom and love too can be ungodly if we imb imbalance our loves choosing the love of people over the love of God which is very often the case in our enlightened community so what does this mean that if any man think he knows something that he doesn't yet know as he should well, first, this means that this means what we've what we've always repeated, that we have to be afraid of being wrong, that we should invite challenge and invite possible corrections 
invite objections. Secondly, this means that no matter how much we do actually know and understand correctly, we actually only understand a small percentage of the whole. That there is far more to understand. There is far more depth to witness in relation to the testimony of God than we have anywhere near the capacity to fathom. The great problem with apostate understandings is the inversion of significance. We naturally make ourselves and our common heart-generated presumptions to be the standard to which God must align himself. Then when we encounter that intentional complexity in all of our Creator's communications and our self-worshipping perspective is accommodated. God's communication policy is to give us exactly what we want. If we want self-worshipping, self-delusion, that's exactly what we're going to see in his testimony. If we truly want real truth, then we are empowered to see the synergistic perfection, the beauty in the harmony, the hidden glory in all of God's testimony that is veiled to filter access to that glory to those who actually circumcise their hearts, which is always the minority. Spiritual knowledge can qualify as an advantage and a disadvantage. If there is knowledge without love, this is the path of arrogance and ungodliness. If there is knowledge that is applied through love and properly balanced love, this is very acceptable to God and Christ. This is the lesson of the burnt offering and the peace offering, that truth offering and love offering, the truth foundation and the necessary addition of love that burn together on the Christ altar of burnt offering. Well, let's uh, continue in First um, Corinthians 8, and we'll pick up at verse 3, where we read, But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Now, again, this is in the context of the uh, theme that Paul is addressing, but it's, this is a really significant statement. This verse has provided the answer to the repeated rejection phrase that Jesus has highlighted in relation to our final judgment. At that judgment, Jesus will tell some of the brothers and sisters from the first two generations of the ecclesial age who were given miraculous powers of the Holy Spirit that he never knew them. We read this in Matthew 7, beginning at verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name have cast out devils, and in your name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Now this warning has often been a, a victim of the presumption of almost universal divine acceptability of the enlightened community, thrusting this rejection off to paganize Christianity with their fake demonstrations of the Holy Spirit possession. That's an absolutely impossible understanding 
This is a prophecy of the final judgment to determine if those judged will live forever or die forever. Those oblivious to enlightenment, paganized Christianity, are not going to be required to attend Christ's judgment. So that emotionally based presumption that this level of rejection couldn't possibly apply to Christadelphians is utterly impossible. Therefore, we, we have this challenge of understanding how Jesus could possibly say to these rejected Christadelphians who had actually performed real miracles that he never knew them. How could it be true that Jesus never knew these members of the enlightened community who miraculously healed people and prophesied and did amazing works? Well, the same question arises from the first of the three judgment parables that Jesus presented two days before he died uh, to those four disciples, two sets of two brothers on the Mount of Olives. Those five wedding attendants in that first parable uh, who were lazy and unprepared for the arrival of the bridegroom were refused at the door by the bridegroom on the basis of his statement that Jesus did not know them. They were appointed wedding attendants, the, wedding, the, the attending virgins with their lamps. But Jesus says, I don't know you. Obviously, this is not a statement about the forgetfulness of the Son of God or his cognitive abilities. How will Jesus be able to say to the enlightened community, to Christadelphians, that he doesn't know them or that he never knew them, despite being enlightened, baptized, and in some cases possessing that earnest of the promise of immortalization, the power to perform miracles by God's Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is back there in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 3. In this, uh, this context of understanding how to judge matters that are variable according to motivation on the basis of spiritual knowledge and one's intensity of faith. Again, that verse 3 says, But if any man love God, the same is known of him. The way to qualify as being known by God and therefore known by Jesus Christ, is not simply enlightenment. It is truly to love God. Obviously, this is definitely not the case with all Christadelphians. But if you ask any Christadelphian, virtually 100%, without exception, they will always defensively insist that they certainly do love God. The differential is this issue of balance. Where we position our love for God in relation to all of our other loves, God only accepts first place. If we demonstrate a love of anyone else, even spouse, children, friends, brotherhood, that is exalted above our love for God, this completely eliminates his acknowledgement of us. This is why Jesus will say, to those from within the enlightened community that he rejects, <clears throat> that he doesn't know them, like those five foolish and lazy wedding attendants and those who performed Holy Spirit miracles, but used that for a platform for self-glory and a presumption of divine acceptability that permitted degrees of ungodliness. So let's not let this issue of knowledge versus love corrupt 
our understandings about the divine principles of judgment. Let's continue with Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians 8, picking up at verse 4. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there's none other god but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there be many, be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by or through whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But meat commends us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. So, now Paul addresses, directly addresses this issue of eating meats offered to idols. Paul expresses the exclusive reality of our Creator and His Son, and that all idols are just imaginary delusions living our lives and modifying our diets on the basis of the manufactured delusions of others is illegitimate and meaningless. However, the Apostle also explains that there are some within the enlightened community who are not quite so confident. The respect for the imaginary delusions of idol worshippers generates a sensitive conscience that accuses the believer with that lesser faith and lesser knowledge. Paul adds that it's not the actual meat that either commends us to God or condemns us before God. Paul then counters this issue of the reality that the meat is utterly meaningless, but that conscience of the believer with a weaker faith and less knowledge is not meaningless. And this is the issue of motivation. So let's continue reading in 1 Corinthians 8 and picking up at verse 9. But take heed, lest any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see you, which have knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world stands, lest I make my brother to offend. We cannot operate as islands that are separate from everyone else. We are responsible for each other. But that Responsibility does not, does not eclipse our primary responsibility to God. We shouldn't drop our standards or intensity in the pursuit of understanding and demonstrating God's righteousness, but we're also not free to disrespect the weaknesses and troubled faith of those in our community who struggle with their conscience on issues that accommodate the presumptions of the society in which we live. Paul expresses that knowledge without love to be the catalyst for the failure of the conscience of the weak brother. We can actually be responsible 
for the failures of others. Jesus emphasizes this issue of being responsible for the failures of others. In Luke chapter 17, uh, we read, And then he said to his disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend, or more appropriately make to offend, one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass against you, rebuke him. And if you repent, forgive him. And if he trespasses against you seven times in a day, seven times in a day, turn again to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Jesus is not referring to offense in the sense of disrespecting a little one so that they become offended. Uh, Jesus is referring to prompting another in an offense against God, being responsible for what Jesus refers to as causing a little one to offend God's righteousness happens to be a very serious mistake. Jesus makes that parallel that it would be better for that brother or sister causing that little one to offend to be drowned in deep water with a weight tied to his or her neck. Well, that sounds like a particularly horrible way to die. But it should be preferable to our, provo- to our provoking the anger of God for causing one of those weak in faith, weak in knowledge, members of the enlightened community to offend God. We are responsible for each other. Parents are responsible for their children before God. Siblings are responsible for each other before God. Neighbors are responsible for neighbors as we're supposed to love our neighbors, at least to the degree that we love ourselves. And we are commanded to love our brothers and sisters in the truth, and of course more than we love ourselves. We spent a fair amount of time considering Paul's instructions. In Hebrews 13, about the Christ altar and the sin offering where the blood was taken into the sanctuary and then the three divisions of the peace offering. Immediately immediately after this, Paul makes this statement in Hebrews 13, uh, verse 17. Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. Now, this is not one of those commands about obeying societal rulers like the emperor. This context demands that this statement is about submitting to the authority of ecclesial authority, just like Israel had to do with the priests in the previous age, for which Paul was a highly educated scholar. If one did not submit to the judgment of the priest under the laws of the kingdom of God, then that person had to be executed. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, And the man that will do presumptuously and will not hearken unto the priest that stands to minister there before the Lord your God or unto the judge, even that man shall die, and you shall put away the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and do no more presumptuously. However, the point we want to note in Paul's statement in Hebrews about respecting the ecclesial elders is that those elders will be required to give account. 
as those elders are commissioned to watch over the souls of the ecclesia. Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account. Ecclesial administrators, leaders, teachers, will answer to Jesus Christ for how we have supported, educated, directed, disciplined, led the enlightened community. This is the same warning, sort of warning that James presented in his exhortation about the danger of the tongue. Uh, he leads off with this statement in James chapter 3. He says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. The term master means a teacher, an instructor, not a slave owner. James cautions us not to be too quick to assume the role of the teacher. Because the level of responsibility of the teacher includes the failures of the students. A teacher subjects himself to a greater condemnation. where We are not all judged on the same basis as we've noted before on a number of occasions. To whom much is given much will be required. There are varying levels of accountability in relation to facing the judgment of Jesus Christ. The principle is that we are responsible for each other. If we provoke the failures of others in the enlightened community, if we actually teach things that are not true, we will answer for these things at Christ's judgment. We will have to give account. Well, spirit, let's balance this spiritual warning. That's always our goal, to recognize the importance of spiritual balance. If we, if we concentrate exclusively on this issue of greater accountability for those who teach and those who lead, we, we may be encouraged to avoid leading and teaching that supposedly safer position of less accountability but that isn't safe either one of those three judgment parables that jesus presented to peter james john and andrew on the mount of olives two days before his death was the parable of the unprofitable servant who accepted that single talent from his master but then wrapped it in a napkin and buried it in the dust of the earth at that point of accountability, he sputtered how it was his fear of losing the talent of value that his master had invested in him, which of course was an absolute lie. The master identifies the real motivation was laziness. The master called the servant slothful. He hadn't been afraid at all, as the master pointed out. If that testimony were true, then all he had to do was invest that talent with the exchangers, and there would have been uh, at least a minimal additional value realized. But that servant, who wasn't really afraid at all, could not be bothered with even that simple an effort. We are not free to do nothing. Fruitfulness is demanded by our God. We will give account. If we do nothing, 
and we will give account. If what we do is not right, we have no alternative but to provide an energetic service that is conditioned by a fear of failure. Our motivations in our fruitful service of God has to include this love component. We serve energetically, but carefully, because we love God, because we love Jesus, because we love each other, the strong and the weak, those with knowledge and those with less knowledge, and because we love mankind, our, our neighbors. Those various loves will be defined by the degree of sacrifice that we demonstrate, that sacrificial love that proves our love is genuine. So this issue of correctly applying the possible variable judgments in relation to the context of meat offered to idols is dependent on recognizing our responsibility to each other and applying whatever spiritual knowledge we have with a great deal of love, sacrificial love. This condemnation perspective appears to have been common with the Pharisees and the scribes during the ministry of Jesus. It was the Pharisees, certainly a division of the enlightened and covenant-bound community, who objected to the disciples of Jesus for picking some grain as they walked by a grain field on a Sabbath morning for a snack. It was the Pharisees, after witnessing Jesus healing a man's withered hand on a Sabbath, started to conspire how to destroy Jesus for healing on a Sabbath. It was the Pharisees who claimed the power Jesus demonstrated to heal had to have come from Beelzebub, the pagan god of diseases. Jesus issued the eight woes against the Pharisees and the scribes two days before his death, publicly declaring them to be hypocrites, blind guides, and whited sepulchers. As dangerous and unloving uh, it is to be one who condemns others in the enlightened community for issues that fit into that indistinct meat offered to idols category, it is equally dangerous to abstain from any form of highlighting ungodly behavior, what is often negatively referred to as criticizing. That too qualifies as unloving, actually on a rather significant scale. Jesus presents an interesting equation to four of his disciples on the Mount of Olives in response to their questions about when the temple would be destroyed and when the world would end, meaning, of course, the transition into the restored kingdom of God uh, to a degree. Jesus tells them in Matthew 24 and verse 12, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, but he that shall endure unto the end the same shall be saved. The equation is that the increasing coldness of love is the direct result of increasing iniquity. One is the result of the other, cause and effect. It makes no difference whether this is considered in the context of the enlightened community or the unenlightened community. 
increasing iniquity has a cooling effect on the love of many. We live in that generation when God will no longer endure the ungodliness of mankind or the enlightened community specifically. He will take control of the world, imposing his laws and demanding enlightenment. God has had enough. Iniquity abounds today to the degree equivalent just before the flood and just before the destruction of Sodom. It is obvious God was extremely disappointed in the enlightened community at those points of judgment as only eight people out of what had to be hundreds of millions of people were saved from that flood. Only three uh, of the Christadelphians in Sodom out of the hundreds of, of, uh, in, the, in that Sodom Ecclesia from Lot's group that had separated from Abram's actually made it out of the city alive before God incinerated everyone. This is the time of the end. Iniquity accelerates everywhere in this generation, both in the unenlightened and enlightened communities. According to Jesus, that means love is waxing colder and colder. We will have to continue considering uh, this particular aspect of judgment in relation to eating meat offered to idols next week when we will focus on Romans 14 and then blend those statements with what we've considered here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.